Okay, today we are beginning a new series called Disciple. Now in AD 20, there was an arch that was built on the outskirts of Rome. It's called the Arch of, Ti of Titus. It's still there today. And it commemorated uh, the military accomplishment of the Roman army destroying the Jewish temple. And it was just kind of there as a commemorative. If you look at the plaque, if you look at all the information, you can see there that it commemorates the time uh, a few years previous when the Jewish temple was destroyed by the Roman army. And it's the moment in time, if you look at that arch, that you would think that the Roman nation, the nation of Rome, triumphed over Israel. The temple was squashed and it would seem like Rome had triumphed. But if you fast forward to AD 300, just over 200 years later, you'll find out there that Christianity then became the official religion of the Roman Empire. How did this happen? How did we get from the destroying of the Jewish temple the celebration of the Roman Empire and the gods of Rome. And then 200 years later, Christianity being the religion of the Roman Empire. Well, I think the key to how that happened is the key text for the next few weeks. It's Matthew 28 and verse 19 to 20. I'm going to read it out to you. And this is our springboard and, and this is where we're going to delve into over the next few weeks. Jesus' uh, words to his disciple in Matthew 28. We'll start from verse 18. And Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' words, you could sum up, which were, go and change the world in the way that I changed your life. And in the first century, that would have seemed impossible. Because in the first century, there was no printing press. There was no social media. There was no internet. How on earth would you get the news out? How on earth would you put into practice the, the command that Jesus had given to his disciples? Now, to understand this, I want to kind of reverse engineer for a minute and find out a little bit about first century Judaism, about the context that Jesus lived in, about the context of being a disciple of a rabbi in that time. Let me just reverse engineer for a minute and give you a bit of historical Jewish context. So in first century Judaism, children of age four to five would begin memorizing Scripture. They begin memorizing the Old Testament. They start with the Torah, and they, they would move on from there. So both at home, at school, and in the synagogue, they would be memorizing Scripture. 
Now, about 10% of the Jewish children population would actually, by the time they got to 13, be able to memorize the whole of the Old Testament. I mean, how incredible is that? But when they got to 13 years old, when a boy got to 13, a girl to 12, but particularly when a boy got to the age of 13 and it was his bar mitzvah, most boys at that point would follow the profession of their father. Jesus, for example, at 13 and followed the profession of his dad, Joseph, and was a carpenter. But a very few of the most outstanding students the most outstanding Jewish boys of that time would seek permission to study with a rabbi. These were called the the Talmudim. And they were devoted disciples to a particular rabbi. And the disciple of a rabbi was committed to this. Listen, committed to memorize the words of the rabbi, adopt his worldview, imitate his practices, and commit to making his own disciples. So you've got to understand, this is the context that we have when Jesus then calls his disciples to follow him. And when Jesus then says, go and make disciples. And discipleship was what was at the very root of what made Christianity flourish at the time of the Roman Empire. Discipleship was what saw Christianity spread throughout the globe and across the Roman Empire. So the last command of Jesus is not the least. You could argue it's the most important. Go and make disciples. It's Jesus' plan to build the church. It's what Jesus modeled, and it's what Jesus gave his life to. Now hear this. Discipleship is not a workbook. It's not a quiet time, and it's not a qualification. Discipleship is whole life. Whole life discipleship. As a Christian, we are called to follow Jesus with our whole life. So I want to ask the question, what what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? And I want to take there, that's why we reverse engineered first century Judaism. I want to take that. That will help us when we understand what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. Number one. It means we are to be a student of the words of Jesus. Now, that's not just the red letter words of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. That's the whole of Scripture. Jesus memorized the Old Testament. Now, Jesus was fully God, but he was fully human. He was fully man. So Jesus would have had to memorize Scripture. Jesus, as a boy, would have memorized the Torah. He would have memorized it at home, in the synagogue, at school. He would have memorized it and memorized it and memorized it. Jesus fulfilled Scripture. Jesus connected Scripture, Old and New Testament Scripture. But Jesus memorized. He did what we need to do, to meditate and feed ourselves on Scripture. Now, let me tell you a few things that happen when we do this. 
When we meditate on scripture, when we feed our mind with scripture, it ignites creativity. It ignites creativity. Creativity comes when we are meditating on God's word. I know in this church we have some incredible creative people. People are creative in in film. People are creative in writing songs. People who are creative in writing blogs and and verse and, 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 and pieces of writing. I tell you, let me tell you, when you meditate on scripture, when you feed your mind on scripture, your creativity will flow from that. Meditating and feeding your mind on scripture also helps you to recall truth in battle. You see, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what did he do? He recalled scripture. He said, it is written. He recalled from his memory scripture to then fight the devil with and overcome the temptation that he was facing. Man will not live by bread alone. You know, Jesus recalled scripture to fight the enemy. That's what we are to do. We meditate on Scripture. We feed our, work, our mind on Scripture so that we can recall truth in the moment of battle. And then Dave looked at it last week. He looked at the last part of our series on Philippians. He looked at how Scripture gives us peace of mind. It's when we meditate on Scripture, what is good and true, and all that, that, that is the key to a peaceful mind, whatever circumstances we may be in. Now, let me help you for a minute. I know some of you will be thinking, Mark, I get it, but it's hard, and I just feel like it goes in one ear and out the other. I read something and I fall asleep. I read something and I start dribbling on the page. You know, it's like, ah, you know, I know it, but it just doesn't seem to make any difference. Let me tell you, I think the picture that I want to give you that I hope helps is when you're filling up a large bath or you're filling up a large paddling pool for the kids, you put the hose in and for ages it feels like and it looks like nothing has happened. And then suddenly you're like, oh, wow. Look, the water's risen. Oh, wow, look at the water in the bath. Better stop it or it'll overflow. Look. And I think it's the same for us with Scripture. So often we think it's not making any difference. It's not making any difference. Nothing, 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 nothing. And then suddenly you go, oh, wow, okay. I can recall that truth. That I meditate on that word and it helps me when I would normally be anxious. I can fight that temptation because I can remember that scripture. Oh, I can be creative in this area of my life because that that piece of truth, that piece of scripture, that that psalm that I sing in my mind and in my heart just just spells creativity. And suddenly you realize the pool is pretty full. The pool is pretty full. So let me encourage you, keep going, keep feeding, keep drinking, keep reading, keep memorizing, keep going. So what we're to do as disciples of Jesus is what Jesus himself modeled. So what does it look like to be a disciple? One, to be, we're to be students of the words of Jesus, the word of God. Secondly, we're to imitate the ways of Jesus. Follow me, says Jesus to his disciples. I think if we're honest, sometimes we can be more faithful to our favorite sports teams or or, or social media accounts 
than we are to following Jesus. We're not called to be a fan of Jesus. We're called to follow Jesus with our whole life. Jesus came not to improve your life. He came to be your life. And I think Jesus, Jesus doesn't want to be in a little church box that only comes out on Sunday. He wants to be with us in every area of our lives. I find it fascinating in Mark chapter 3, in the account in Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, when Jesus calls the disciples, he calls them to be with him. That's the phrase, to be with him. In other words, just to walk with Jesus, to be with him every day, in every situation. And in that, we're to then imitate everything that Jesus did. We're to imitate his humility. We're to be a giver of grace like Jesus was a giver of grace. We're to challenge injustice and what is wrong like Jesus challenged injustice and what was wrong. We're to be a disruptor of the religious. We're to to be an imitator of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. A follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus is one who is with Jesus and follows Jesus. Third thing, what is it like to be a disciple? What does it look like? It looks like partnering in the mission of Jesus. You see, we get to do what Jesus did. We get to do what Jesus came to do. Isn't that wonderful? When in in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus came into the synagogue, and he rolled the scrolls open to Isaiah 61, and he read out, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news, to set the captives free. When he reads out Isaiah 61, he's reading out our mandate, too, for our lives, what we are called to do, what we are called to do in partnership with Jesus. That's the vision of Hope Church, to proclaim the gospel, to equip people, love people, and see miracles. It comes out of Isaiah 61. That's the vision of this church. And I think we are to be very clear on this. Jesus doesn't just save us from something to something doesn't just save us from destruction to heaven. He doesn't just do that. He gives us a purpose and a plan to our lives. And when we partner with Jesus in the mission, we see the flourishing of communities. That's why I'm so excited about what lies ahead in this season. Because as we partner with Jesus... I believe we're going to see a flourishing here in the hub, here in the communities around us, here in East London. As we partner with Jesus in doing the the calling upon our lives as a church, we're going to bless others around us. There's going to be like an overflow of blessing as we do what Jesus calls us to do, as we partner in the mission of Jesus. There's going to be ripples throughout the connections that we have with friends, with family, with neighbors, with the building of people above us, with the community around us in Stratford, throughout the nations that we are connected to, through family, through others. There will be ripples through those 
as we partner in the mission with Jesus. This is what discipleship looks like. It's what it looks like. Just one other interesting fact before, before I move on. Just, just think about this. So remember what I said about first century uh, kind of Jewish tradition and the Talmudin. So Jesus went after the group of people who did not fit into following a rabbi. Isn't that wonderful? So there was the group, the kind of the high flyers, the kind of the really great Jewish boys and men who were following rabbis. And Jesus, when he called the different disciples from different backgrounds, didn't call them. He came into every area of society, every type of different person, and said, come, follow me. So to each one of us, whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever we think of our intelligence, our ability, our talents, our gifting, Jesus comes to us and says, come, follow me. So that's a little bit about what it looks like to be a disciple. I want to finish the second half of this message by giving you some practical tools on the how-to. How do we do discipleship? What does it look like? Okay? So I'm going to give you four very practical kind of anchors. How? How-to. Firstly, discipleship is fueled by the Holy Spirit. I'm not a huge one for nature, but I was reading something uh, last week about birds and birds that, that, that fly and how they fly. This might be like, if you don't know anything about nature or birds, this would be like, yeah, of course, Mark. But for me, it's like, oh, okay, I get that. That's cool. That's awesome. I was just reading about uh, how birds fly high in thermos, bits of air that carry them along. So they get high up into the atmosphere, these particular birds, and they will fly and just glide on the thermos. In other words, they don't do anything. They, they just glide and they get to their destination by gliding on the thermos, on, on, on the kind of currents of air. And I was thinking about that and thinking, well, that's a great illustration of how the Holy Spirit can fuel our lives and help us to follow Jesus and live as a disciple. It's the Holy Spirit that can help us to refuel, to renew, to empower us. It's the Holy Spirit that can help us do those things that physically seem exhausting or difficult. One comment on the early church is this. The early church was small on resources, but big on the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes in today's church, we're the wrong way around. We've got resources coming out of your ears, discipleship manuals, books, internet, incredible things, tools to study the Bible, incredible, 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 not so much Holy Spirit. And I think that is a huge challenge. And, and Jesus, after Matthew 28, the final words that he says are actually in Acts 1, verse 8. And I think they kind of link together. He says, go and make disciples throughout the world. And then his final words before he goes up to be with God in heaven in Acts 1, verse 8, is basically, wait 
for the Holy Spirit. Don't go anywhere before the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power. Let the Holy Spirit come on you, empower you to do what I've commanded you. I've commanded you to make disciples, but I'm going to give you the power, which is the Holy Spirit, to help you to see that discipleship and to see that take place. Right back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. What makes the difference? The difference is the breath of God. Genesis 2 and verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The Holy Spirit, the breath of God is what makes the difference. It's the Holy Spirit that is our power source that brings a freshness and a vitality and, and, and all the resources that we need. So that's the first practical how. Second one, discipleship is a process. This is really important. It's a process. Go, Jesus says. Go and make disciples. When you make something, you make a cake, it's, it's a process. You do it. You make something. You, you invest in discipleship and it takes time. There's a maturing process that takes months and years to discipleship. And discipleship is messy too. It's not neat. I like things neat. Okay. Ask my wife. We're polar opposites. Go to our bedroom. Mine is, she won't mind me saying this, it's just true. It's just who we are. I'm, everything is neat, kind of books lined up, clothes folded up, everything neat, everything has its place, one side of the bed. The other one, kind of like all of that. Kind of, that's just, that's just the two sides of the bedroom. Okay, that's just two personalities. I like things neat. Discipleship is not neat. It's not, it's all over the place. It's, it's messy. It has loose ends. It has bits that you don't know what to do with. And interesting, Jesus says, there's almost like a process in what Jesus says. Jesus says, come and see to people. Come and see. Then he says, come follow me. And then he says, come pick up your cross. Come pick up your cross. Commitment. Surrender. You're going to do this. This is hardcore. This is serious. It's a process. Come and see, come and follow, come and pick up your cross. If you go back into Matthew 28, the verse before what we read, verse 17, says this. It says, some doubted. It says, some doubted. And I think that's so important that in discipleship, doubt is okay. Doubting is actually part of the process. It's good, it's healthy to be honest. It's good and healthy to have the questions and have the doubts. We're all invited to follow Jesus. Some will have doubts, some will be straight in, some will be off like a rocket and then really struggle. Some will just plod and plod and plod. Everyone is different. Discipleship is not a destination. It is a, a process that we walk through and live through with Jesus. There's not a cookie cutter that cuts discipleship in each of our lives. There's not. 
There's not a one-size-fits-all cookie cutter for discipleship. Neither is it one linear kind of sequence of events. Discipleship is it's something like that. And discipleship is, is handcrafted and not mass-produced. So important that we get this. It will really help us with the how and, and what discipleship looks like. Third thing, how do we do discipleship? Discipleship is rooted in community and relationship. Discipleship takes place best within the context of the local church. Because in the context of the local church, we learn from one another. We have people of different ages. We have people of different experiences. We have people of different cultures. We have people of different races, different nationalities. And we're connected by Jesus. And we can encourage one another. And we can challenge one another. We can find each other's weak spots and blind spots. And we can fan into flames the gifts and talents that each of us have. That's where discipleship flourishes, in the context of the local church, in the context of Sunday and community groups and meeting up for a coffee and just chatting and going for a run with someone or whatever it may be. One other interesting thing, do you know what Jesus spent a lot of time doing? You can read it in the Gospels. He spent a lot of time eating. Some of you are like, yes. He spent a lot of time eating around a table. Or maybe in Middle Eastern times, sitting on the floor and just eating together. In Luke, I found this out this week. In Luke, 20, there are 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. And there are 10 instances where Jesus is eating food, either around a table or sitting down in a room. Ten instances. And it's in those contexts that Jesus teaches, and Jesus is basically discipling his disciples and teaching the people in the room. Luke chapter 4, he teaches basically around the table that the tax collectors belong at the table. They should not be ostracized because they're tax collectors. No, no, no. They can stay around the table. All are welcome around the table of Christ. In Luke chapter 12, in the context of a meal, Jesus tells the parable of the wedding banquet. He tells a parable, a story to make a powerful point. In Luke 22, when the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest of them all, sitting around a table or sitting around on the floor, he teaches about humility. Jesus was there. In the moment, around a table, fully present, fully engaged, teaching and discipling in the context of food, in the context of being around a table. The beautiful thing about being around a table is there's no hierarchy. Everybody's around that table. Everyone can contribute and be taught and contribute and be taught and contribute and be taught. I'm excited by some of the things I'm seeing at Hope Church at the moment. I love what, what we're doing with the young people. Tom and Phoebe doing incredible work with Young Life, but then within the context of the youth at Hope Church, we're, we're going to make sure that they're going to engage with other older members of the church, go around to people's and have meals together. 
where, where young people can benefit from, from having different generational relationships. That's how you build strong church. That's how you build discipleship in the lives of a young person. Wow, I went to so-and-so's house. Wow, so-and-so, this guy I never met just talked to me. For a young person, that is massive. And it's about discipleship in community. And I would encourage you, if you're part of Hope Church or you're looking in or you're just watching online, I would encourage you to engage in building community. That is where you will grow. That is where you will flourish. That is where your life will will, will go in areas that you never thought possible. At times it will be challenging. At times there will be difficulties. But it will be a beautiful thing in the context of community. Final thing, how do we do discipleship? Final anchor, final how-to. Discipleship is measured by multiplication. Again, I think this is so helpful, so, so helpful. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul talking to Timothy, who he was discipling. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, it's a bit of a mouthful, 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, um, he said, teach to others also. Basically, Paul is saying to Timothy, pass the baton on. Paul is saying to Timothy, in terms of church, in terms of the spread of the gospel, pass it on. Pass it on. That is how the early church grew. That is how the early church grew from hiding, uh, from, from being scared, from being persecuted, to becoming the, the, the religion of the Roman Empire. Pass it on, pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. If each one of us multiply by three, this room in a year will be standing room only. If each of us multiply by five, we'll need multiple services. And you go on and on and on. It's, it's about multiplication. And you say, well, Mark, what does multiplication look like? Well, we'll explore that a little bit more in the next week. But basically, multiplication is about being surrendered to God and obedient. If we are surrendered to God and where he leads us and where he takes us and we're obedient to that call, we will see multiplication. I don't think it's complicated. It's challenging, yes. It's difficult, yes. It, it takes us to places that are way out of our comfort zone, but I don't think it's complicated. It's about surrender and it's about obedience. I will follow you, Jesus. I will do what you show me to do, Jesus. I tell you what, if this week, this group in this room, those of you watching online, if you this week go and surrender to Jesus and are obedient to Jesus, you will see multiplication. In some shape or form, you will see a multiplication of blessing. You will see a multiplication of influence. You will see a multiplication of your gifting and your talents. Whatever it may be, you will see some kind of multiplication as you surrender and as you are obedient. And think of it like this. Jesus says, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
I tell you, in today's climate, today's world, if we take those words seriously, if we surrender to those words and are obedient to those words, then we will see multiplication. If we love people around us, if we love those that God has put into contact with, then we will see multiplication. We will. Because love, loving people, no matter what they have done, loving people, no matter how they respond to us, loving people, no matter how they've been kind or angry or whatever, loving people is countercultural and it will make a difference. So there's four anchors, four practical ways of the how to disciple, the how to do discipleship. Jesus says to each one of us, come, follow me. That's his call, his simple baseline call to each one of us. And as I close today, I want to give two challenges. The first challenge is this. If you're not a Christian, not a believer, then there's an invitation. Jesus says, come, follow me. Also, maybe, you know, you've drifted a bit. You, you just know, although you're a Christian, you've just drifted and you haven't been following Jesus during the week in your lives. You haven't been following Jesus. This is the moment to say, Lord, I'm coming back. Like the prodigal, I'm turning around. I'm coming back. I'm coming back to you, Lord. I'm coming back to you. I want to follow you afresh, starting right now. So that's the first challenge that is there for all of us. The second one is this. The second one is this. We are all called to be disciple makers. Each one of us. You're called to go make disciples. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Go into the world and make disciples. You need the help of the Holy Spirit. It needs to be in community, in the church. It's a process. It takes time, it's, it's, it's got edges, it's messy, all of that kind of stuff. But I want to ask that today, many of us would make a fresh commitment to say, Lord, I'm going to make disciples afresh today. Lord, speak to me. I surrender to you. Speak to me. I want to be obedient. Maybe you'll give me two or three people in my life that I am to disciple. Maybe you're to challenge some, me to, to, to reach out to someone. Whatever it may be, but I want to ask that God would stir us to take Jesus' command seriously and put it into practice.